Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Perceptive Podcast here on Game Wisdom, where we examine the art and science of games. I am still Josh Blazer, and we got a very great cast for you tonight. We're going to be talking about the revival of the Intellivision brand and what it means not only for the idea of modern retro, but also kind of preserving these classic brands and designs today. And joining me, he is the president of Quicksilver Software. He worked on the television back in the day, and he's now also working with the revival. Please welcome Bill Fisher. Hello. Hi, Bill. It's a pleasure to have you on. How are you doing tonight? Very nice. How are you? I am doing all right. We are recording this in mid-July now, so if we are, I guess both of us are now in our respective heat waves. <laughs> Roiling out here, yes. Mm-hmm. But we certainly have a lot to talk about, and uh, Bill was introduced to me by, of course, friend of the site and my co-host for our live show, Robert Leach, and uh, we've been trying to get this going for at least a little bit, and it's great to have you on tonight. Thanks. I'm going to enjoy it. I love I love talking about what I do. It's fun. Oh, yes. I've heard that from a lot of guests, and we can certainly have some discussions but we certainly have a gambit of topics to talk about, both talking about your original time in television, what you've been up to, and of course, what's going on with bringing the brand back. So for people listening to this right now, my audience runs basically from students to enthusiasts and even members of the industry as well. And right. for a lot of the younger people who may be listening to this right now, and we could both get to be like our respective old men as well. What is the Intellivision for the youngins listening? <laughs> yeah, well, these days that is, that is actually a very important question to ask and a very important topic to discuss because a lot of people haven't actually seen an original Intellivision in its original form uh, because it was uh, it was popular uh, from so so going to what it is. Intellivision was part of the first generation of programmable video game systems. Everything prior to the Atari VCS, the Intellivision, the ColecoVision uh, were non-programmable systems. So the Magnavox Odyssey, for example, you had little cartridge things that mm -hmm. you plugged in. But what they were is they were just little circuit cards that, that had a couple of switches and the diodes and so forth on them that would change the behavior of the system internally. But it didn't actually have what we would consider in, in modern parlance an actual computer program in it. There were no CPU in that box. <clears throat> Whereas, <clears throat> excuse me, the Intellivision and the Atari and so forth had a, had a processor of some sort or another. The, uh, the Atari was a 6502 derivative. Um, the ColecoVision was also an 8-bit chip. And the Intellivision was the first 16-bit console. It actually had a 16-bit CPU in it. It was the... Uh, uh, General Instrument CP1610, which was modeled on the PDP-11 instruction set with lots of quirky stuff that we probably don't want to go into here. <laughs> but it was a very interesting machine to work with. And uh, all those machines were running at what would today be considered <clears throat> spectacularly slow clock rates. Uh, the Atari ran at around 1 megahertz, and the Intellivision was actually 800 kilohertz. Um, so these processors ran very, very slowly by today's standards, and that's why it was so important to have hardware assist in everything. So the Atari had one way of doing stuff. The Intellivision was very, very different in the way it was built. It had a chip from General Instrument that allowed it to do things that the Atari couldn't, but couldn't do some things that the Atari could. It was a, a very interesting mix. 
Um, but in, in a whole, those were the very first game systems where you could actually write, uh, write code to make it do stuff. And so a lot of the fun for us came from fa the fact that we were the first generation of people who had the ability to invent a, a or to think about, to conceive of a game design and a game experience and then actually write code using this very limited but ultimately very clever hardware to implement as many things as we could um, in using, using whatever power we had available to us and to make fun games and to make things that would last a long time. And that was, that's one of the principles we've discovered over the years is that, you know what, these games, they may look pretty cheesy by today's standards, but they're still fun to play. We actually did had a great time at uh, E3 playing a number of the old television games as we were sitting there in the booth. So mm -hmm. um, anyway, that's a long answer to, to the <laughs> question, but yeah, that's what the Intellivision was. Mm -hmm. And for people listening, what year was the Intellivision originally released? The Intellivision was first released in 1979 in test markets in Fresno and one other location in the U.S. Um, it was a very limited release. It was so successful, the, uh, the thing actually uh, would work well. And they decided to go nationwide with it. And they've actually brought it nationwide. Mattel Electronics itself marketed the product from 1980 to 1984. And in January of 1984, Mattel Electronics closed up shop and knocked a, kicked us all out the door. We like, to, we like to memorialize the day that we found out it was our last week at Mattel as Friday, Friday January 13th, 1984. Because <laughs> um, January 20th, we were all out of work. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so it lasted there, but what happened then, it was actually quite interesting. The Intellivision was then taken over by a guy named Terry Valesky, who was the, one of the, one of the key people in the marketing department at Mattel. And he bought out the rights from Mattel and continued manufacturing the, both the console and a bunch of new game cartridges, uh, until 1990. So it actually lasted for 10 years. Hmm. And, and just so you know, some of the other things about the television that were interesting, it was uh, we had we had a reputation for having a lot of sports games. So we didn't have as much in the way of action titles, but we had baseball and football and and hockey. People loved loved the hockey game and loved the baseball game. Um, we technically were we consider ourselves to be the first console that ever had digitized voice in a game. Um, because we had a, a year out sound in baseball and then subsequently rele we released the, uh, IntelliVoice module, which had some of the best voice games done in that era. We had four different games, uh, done in the voice area where the voice was absolutely essential to the gameplay. You couldn't play it without that. Um, so anyway, we had over a hundred games that were out for the Intellivision. There were many different publishers that started publishing for it. In addition to Mattel, you had Activision, iMagic. Um, and several others. Uh, there was a lot of really fun titles that, uh, that that came out even after Mattel stopped doing stuff. You know, iMagic went on for quite some time, and they made some wonderful games. So did I, Activision. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you said, Bill, that the Intelligent release it was originally stopped in January thirteenth of nineteen eighty four. I was born in. 1985 so <laughs> i just missed it by a, a little bit there but it's very interesting again like as we're sitting here talking about that time for a lot of people who play video games today they probably got into it maybe over like the last 10 to 15 years ago maybe a little bit more than that 
and it's just such a fascinating. I mean, we could probably just turn this into a whole, you know, wax philosophically about game industry, uh, Cass. But it's amazing just how much things have rapidly changed over the last thirty years. Very much so, yeah. And you know, back then, back then it was interesting because there were no, there, there was no no precursors. There was nothing before us, and so mm-hmm. every game we did, we came up with some really unusual games. Um, things like uh, Mazatron or um, Vectron. Uh, and stuff like that. In addition to Tron Deadly Discs, which was a fantastic game, um, Night Stalker, some of the other games that we did, even B-17 Bomber, was that there was nothing really that had ever been done like that in the video game industry prior. And we spent a lot of our time trying to figure out, well, what is it that we can do with this thing? What are the possibilities? We don't even know what the limits are, where the walls are, because mm-hmm. nobody's, you know, we, we, were, we were definitely the pioneers out in the middle of the desert with a covered wagon and a couple of horses wandering around and saying, well, let's go that away. Um, it was a lot of fun. Um, but but that there was a, a very big burst of creativity in the early days. It was like the Cambrian explosion of the video game industry. And so there was, there was a lot of fun stuff that was coming up that had never been seen before and that people were experiencing for the very first time. So everything was fresh and new. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that because of the fact that the hardware was fairly limited, I mean, it was cool, and especially for its day, it was amazing. It was completely astonishing to see, you know, a television that did something other than play TV. Um, remember, this is an era before there were before videotape recorders were really even popular. This was this was in the early days of Beta and VHS, where Beta had still not lost to VHS and VHS recorders. I remember buying one when I was at Mattel, and that was a big deal. That was a new device, and it cost me a thousand dollars for that videotape recorder. Mm-hmm. So. It was a very different world than it is today. You had cable TV that was very limited. You know, there was almost no recording. And TVs just displayed signals. And even remote controls on TVs were rare in that era. So it was a completely different world than it is today. And, and you know, the hardware <clears throat> did all sorts of crazy things. And, and our, big, our big challenge was, okay, well, how do we make the most fun out of what it is that we've got. We've got these very limited resources. The cartridges were tiny in size. Keep in mind that the largest cartridge that Mattel ever did that was a commercial game, I think, was probably 16K. Um, most of the early games, all the early games, were about were 4K. Some of them were 8K. Um, one of my games made it to 12, but 5K, that was voice data, so really it was only 7K, you know, mm-hmm. and so forth. They were very tiny, and so you had to focus a tremendous amount on how you can squeeze the most gameplay possible into the fewest bytes of code possible. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you brought that up, Bill, about being like, again, being the pioneers of game design, because even today, it's still very hard to put in words what exactly game design is, let alone we're talking 70s, early 80s as well. And it's definitely a topic that I think I've lost count of how many hours I've spent talking about. But it's just really fascinating to look at the game industry from the 70s into probably maybe like the early 90s, maybe late 80s, where, again, a lot of these genres and designs were really just first of their kinds. Like, nobody knew that something like Asteroids was going to be a big hit, or Pac-Man, or even stuff like the first-generation PC games like Ultima, King's Quest, Zork, and so on and so forth. 
Yeah, and they were all fresh and new, and nobody had ever seen anything like it before. You know, nobody had ever seen anything like Wizardry, which is one of my mm. favorites, in the early days. Although, actually, that's not entirely true. There was a Wizardry-like game that was on the CDC Play-Doh system <laughs> in, the, in the late 70s, and I actually played that for quite a while. That was a lot of fun. I will, um, I will say, Bill, you just stumped me because I had no idea what that console is that you just said. <laughs> CDC Plato was Controlled Data Corporation. It was an educational really? computer. And it was a very, very interesting thing. They were uh, they predated almost all of the other computers that are out there that are of, uh, of, of, had any graphics at all on them because they had a character set-based graphics system, which was fairly powerful. They had their own programming language. I don't even remember exactly what it was. Um, they had a very large amount of educational content on it, um, and we had terminals for it at UCLA. So I actually played around with it. I took a bunch of courses on Esperanto in uh, in, in Plato, um, but it had, it had a few games on it, and it had a little dungeon crawl game that was a tremendous amount of fun. Um, but you know, those kind of things, those they were they were in their embryonic states. And people were still exploring, well, what is it about this game or that game that makes it fun? And so, yeah, you're right that the genres really hadn't settled until the 90s. You know, the genres started to be formed in the 80s, and then they kind of settled down. And you had the sports genre and the adventure genre and, the, and this and that. And then, of course, we've had new ones evolve over the years as we've gotten into more and more division. And, and you know, that's one of the exciting things about the modern world is that we've got so many different genres. There are so many different platforms and genre combinations that give you very different experiences. You've got mobile gaming, you've got VR gaming, you've got PC gaming, you've got console gaming, and they're all different. They all take different skills to design them and build them and play them and different interest levels. And some people only like to play games on the phone and other people want a console because they want the high power and the high rendering capabilities. Other people want PC games for, for similar reasons. And it goes on and on. Um, None of that existed back then. The only thing that existed really was was PC or was, was consoles. And then at the end, toward the end of when I was at Mattel, we also started doing Apple II and IBM PC games. Hmm. Yeah. And again, like as we were just saying, it's so crazy how much things have changed today. As you said, with regards to the just the numerous ways of being able to play video games. I mean, of uh, like talking about again that handheld versus the console side. Like, for myself, I remember, like, the original Game Boy, but I know there have been, like, other, like, smaller, or I guess we could say, like, bulkier handhelds released during that era, and again, like, it's crazy to think about how much was done back then, just in terms of thinking about, I want to make a game about a character running from left to right, and then just trying to figure out all the ways of doing that. Yeah, it was fairly difficult. You know, and, and you had so many constraints on you um, into into the mid heck into the end of the 80s, you know, and even in the early 90s, there were tremendous technical limits on what you could do. And, you know, programmers, game programmers especially are always saying, well, if I only had more power, I could do blah. That's been the truth. That's been true for decades. Yes. <laughs> It's still true now. Well, I really can't get what I want to get out of my HTC Vive because I don't have enough graphics power with my dual top-of-the-line NVIDIA cards to do what I want. It's like, oh, holy cow. <laughs> uh, 
you know, we had, you know, you had the running man and he was six or eight frames of the running man. And it's like, oh my God, six or eight frames. Let's say that's eight times 16 fights high. So that's eight frames times 16. Oh my God, that's 128 bites. Oh, that's so much space. I don't know if I can afford that. <laughs> yeah. That's what we were in, in, you know, in the early eighties. And I mean, we were, we were down to the point where we would have contests to see who could write the same algorithm in the fewest number of, of uh, instructions. <laughs> For some reason, that really reminds me of, I don't know if you've heard of the developer Zachtronics, who they make all kinds of uh, puzzle programming-based uh, puzzle games. And like one of the things they have is like a challenge, you can challenge your friend to see who can write the most optimized code and who can do it in like the fewest amount of lines. <laughs> it's just crazy to me that he turned that into a video game and that used to be like or it could still be considered a challenge to this day well and and even today i mean i'm actually i'll, I'll put in a plug for the ieee game sig because i run uh, i'm the chairman of uh, game sig for ieee which is the largest professional services organization in the world mm -hmm. um and every year we have a game programming contest here in orange county but now we've also got one specifically for classic games programming. And so we, if you go to internationalgamesig.org, um, you'll see that there's an announcement. It's actually a redirect right now to our main site, but it's a, an announcement of a video game programming contest for the Intellivision. We want people to write games that are either lookalikes or actual Intellivision games mm -hmm. and live within those constraints and solve the puzzle, as it were, of making a great game that is an Intellivision game that has extremely tight limitations. You have eight sprites. You have this number of interacts. You have this. You have sixteen colors. Your resolution is uh, one sixty by ninety six. You know, it's like really, this is crazy. How can I write a game with this? You know, mm -hmm. and that's part of the fun of it. Of course, is is how do you write a game with with incredible limits? And and so you know, in the early days, we had to puzzle all that stuff out and and just make it fun anyway, um, which is a lot of what we we ended up spending our time on, but there was so much time that had to be spent on squeezing stuff into the cartridge. If I, I, I actually uh, recently got my hands on a source code listing of the original game that I wrote, my very first game, Space Hawk. And it's so much fun because it turns out at the end of the listing, I actually wrote notes about what I was doing every day. <laughs> and for a couple of the days in the later part of the project in August of 1981, um, or maybe it was September, October, I guess it was October at that point. Um, I, I spent entire days doing nothing but trying to figure out how to get more space into the cartridge, you know, how to squeeze down the algorithms that I already had to make them take less space. I saved 20 bytes, <laughs> you know, and seriously, we did that. And, and, you know, the worst case scenario was B-17 bomber where we had to get that out the door and we had a bug and I had to get more space out of it. And I had to come up with, let's just say for the nerdy among us, I had to come up with an incredibly bizarre, you know, use a machine language instruction that you would never normally want to use, but it saved me enough space to fit the new bug fix in there, you know? And so you do weird, you did really weird things um, to save space. My, my friend Steve, who's also involved in the television stuff now, was famous for coming up with a way to use another um, instruction in the instruction set of the machine called explode status word, which was so obscure in its utilization that it actually had a comment in the manual that says, nobody's ever going to use this, but we're documenting it for the purposes of completeness. 
Right. And we ended up using it. We actually used it. It, it, it helped because it saved space. Mm-hmm. I don't care how screwy it is. <laughs> if it saves me, you know, two instructions, that's a big deal when yeah. you've only got 2,000 instructions to make an entire game. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a bit of an interesting question for you, Bill. Like, talking again about, like, the span of how hardware has evolved in the game industry. Again, we're talking about stuff, like, back where it's, like, a, I think, what was it, like, less than a kilobyte of data, or, like, around there, and we're looking at computers today that have gigabytes. I mean, we see, like, gaming PCs now, like, having at least 16 uh, gigs of RAM, and, you know, yeah. quad processors, it's insane, and... We're also seeing that kind of hardware jump on the har- on the console side. So one thing that I've been thinking about, I just want to get your thoughts on this. Do you think the hardware wars are finally starting to slow down? Do you think they will ever slow down in terms of just how much you can really put into these consoles and these machines to have that big of an impact on video games? I think it's going to be a long time before we hit the ceiling because people's dreams and expectations – just keep getting more and more ambitious and i keep seeing today the same problem that we had in 1981 or 82 where <clears throat> you say well i want to do this and you say i don't have enough cpu power i need 10 times the power to do this you know i want to have a game that has well for example uh scrolling uh roadway okay it's something as simple as I want the roadway to be scrolling underneath my vehicle as it's driving up the road, you know, so that I can uh, dodge the obstacles. In 1982 on an Apple II, that was nearly <laughs> impossible. You know, it was like, oh, my gosh, how in the world are we going to achieve that? We can't draw the dots fast enough, you know. Mm-hmm. And on the Intellivision, uh, the scrolling was very complicated. There is some very clever code that was written by the people at APH technological consulting who, um, who who developed some of the earliest of the Intellivision games prior to our staff coming on internally. And <clears throat> these guys wrote some really complicated scroll code, and that was a big deal at the time. I used that in my first game because it was like, oh, my gosh, I've got a scroll module. Other video game consoles can't do this. Um, so it was a big deal. And nowadays, you know, you're looking at it, and what I'm finding is that people are still – Hitting the ceiling um, in terms of performance on things like uh, VR. So you've got a VR system, and you've got two uh, two uh, view you know two views that are having to come into your your headset. And the problem is you want to render those at at least 2K, if not 4K resolution. And we're still barely at the point where we can do the 4K and have it perform reasonably. And to do that, you need a ridiculous gonzo machine that's just beyond high-powered. Um, so I think that the the ceiling is still well above us because it's going to be a long time before we get really the level of performance that we want on those types of devices, and, and they come down to commodity level. Mm-hmm. Um, one way to look at it is, you know, the Intellivision was a CP1610 single-threaded CPU running 800 kilohertz with most of the instructions taking about 10 machine cycles to run on average. So you're dealing with 100,000 opcodes per second. You can now get, and and the funny part is that, you know, for the Intellivision, uh, the new generation Intellivision that we're building, 
uh, it is going to have hand controllers with more power than the original Intellivision. The hand controller alone is going to have an Arduino in it, probably. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's a modest CPU. But even then, those things are running at hundreds of, of kilohertz or gigahertz or megahertz, rather, hundreds of megahertz. And it has a GPU on it so that it can drive a little digital display. And it has a Bluetooth LE and half a dozen other things. And it runs on batteries. And it's the size of a postage stamp. Um, or you go to, to another example of what, what can you buy just off the shelf these days. For 35 bucks, you can buy a Raspberry Pi 3D Plus, four cores, 1.4 gigahertz, gigs of RAM. I mean, and the thing is the size of a very small playing card. <laughs> it's smaller <laughs> than a playing card, right? And you look at this thing. It's, this thing has a, has 10,000 times the power of the Intellivision. Oh, yeah. I just got my first smartphone, like, and it was like last year. So, like, this whole time realizing – this thing that's in my pocket now is probably more powerful than most of my old consoles that I own. And oh, yeah. It's insane. My, my iPhone is at least 100,000 times faster than the Intellivision. Mm-hmm. <coughs> I mean, you think about it. The Intellivision, the resolution was 160 by 96. We had 16 colors. And we had literally hundreds of bytes of RAM was all we had. <laughs> and that included everything in the entire system. Um, it was, it was insanely small cartridges in the measured in K and so forth. <laughs> and, you know, the, the screen on my phone is 1920 by 1080. <laughs> and as I'm sitting here, I've got a laptop in front of me, which is a, a, a retina display laptop that's hooked to a 1920 by 1080 monitor and a 4k monitor driving all three at the same time <laughs> on a laptop. I, I, I just want to say that, like, for, like, anyone young listening to this podcast right now, I'm sure their, like, mouth is just a gate thinking about, like, the horror trying to play a game back then. Uh, or to write a game. I mean, think yeah. about writing, what it took. Oh, yeah. Your, your computers now, you've got editors with auto sense and auto fill of all the parameters for the functions and They've got syntax checkers, and they've got nice little windows with mouse that cut and paste, cut and paste. Whoa, <laughs> there's a concept for you. You know, we were dealing with you know green screen Tektronix terminals. I had a good terminal. I was lucky. I didn't have the uh, ADM 3As, which were these cheese ball things that looked awful. I had a green screen Tektronix 80 by 24 with you know, glowing green text on a black background. And those were the two colors you got green and black. And, you know, and, and, and you used Ed as an editor and it's a simple minded command line editor where you had to shift in and out of edit mode and when you're out of edit mode. It's I J K and L to go up left, right and down, <laughs> and, you know, X to delete a character and I to insert. And I mean, you don't, it it, it it was like, oh, my gosh. It was, it was like almost – it was one step away from stone tablets and chisels. <laughs> it reminds me like I gave a presentation about the arcade industry about like, – I think it was like last year or the year before then. And there was this like 12-year-old girl in the audience. I was like – I showed her a picture. And this was like of a dial-up modem from the 90s. Uh, uh, uh. I'm like, do you know what this is? No. I'm like, well, you know how your phone can – you can talk and play games on it? Well, we had to decide between using our phone or going on the internet. And she just stared at me like I just described like 
some kind of medieval uh, process for like, using like leeches to like cure someone. Totally true. You're you know, and and it's it's funny. I mean, I find it fun. I I find it hilarious, and I'm really excited about all the technology and how far it's come and how much easier it is to do the fun things that we do today that we never had the ability to do back in back then because I can accomplish so much and the tools are so powerful and they're <laughs> they're quirky as heck. <laughs> um, so it's never easy. Uh, but, but there's a lot of amazing stuff that you can do. And I'm writing all sorts of stuff in all sorts of languages from PHP to C++, JavaScript, you know, C sharp, you name it and doing all kinds of products using all kinds of tools. And I've got my laptop has 15 apps open at once. And, you know, it's, I'm very productive now. And it was hard back in the day to be productive because mm-hmm. you, your machine could do only basically one thing at a time. I mean, the Apple II, you want to do word processing? Okay, stick in the word processor diskette and hit reset, and it boots, and it goes, and there's your word processor, and then you use that for a while, and they say, okay, I'm done with that. Now I'm going to go, you know, make a spreadsheet. Okay, take that diskette out, put the new diskette in, hit the reset button, machine reboots, now you're up in Excel. You know, or actually back then it was physical, you know, and so on and so on. It's just you you think about we we don't really talk that much about the productivity amplification level that modern machines have given us. You know, you've gone mm-hmm. from a, the 80 by 24 text only screen to this monitor in front of me right now is two and a half feet diagonal. And it's 4000 pixels wide. In 32 bits, and I'm like, okay, this is awesome. I was doing a demo. I was actually we were planning out the the production for the Intellivision, and I put it up. I put the the spreadsheet up on the uh, monitors for everybody to see. And I said, this is what our business plan looks like. And you could read this tremendous <laughs> spreadsheet and had 45 columns on the screen at once. You know, it was glorious. Yeah. I remember like the first time I was at a job and they had a dual monitor set up. And that was like my first time using it. I'm like, why would I ever need two monitors on at the same time? I just have everything on my one screen. And then I go, and then like I remember the first time, like, hmm, if only I had these two windows open at the same time, I could look at them. And then it was like, oh, that's what the dual <laughs> monitor is for. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's what I've done. Been doing a lot is I've got you know the the big monitor for the spreadsheet, and then I had actually a second monitor with a second spreadsheet that's pointing into the first spreadsheet <laughs> and doing analytics on the spreadsheet and displaying those as you're changing the numbers in the one, the other one changes. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's great. Mm-hmm. Now, before we just spend like the next like hour like reminiscing about the game industry, yeah, yeah, we're getting off the weeds a little bit. I have uh, two general questions about kind of watching the industry grow, and then we'll focus more about Intellivision and especially about what your what you and your company are doing with the revival today. Great. So, uh, one thing that I wanted to touch on, and this is another thing that for like younger people listening, they probably don't know or they'll probably never experience this. But the whole idea of the game industry crash, as uh, people like my generation knows, like I got into the game industry, well, technically my first game was Mario 1988 when I was three years old. So I missed the original crash. But I was just wondering for you, like, 
like how was it like at that time when the industry basically had its first major setback? It was catastrophic. It was thermonuclear destruction. And it was it was a terrifying time. And of course we decided to start our own company then. Right? Mm-hmm. But you know, you can imagine we had a very robust competitive industry. You had Atari, Mattel, you had uh, Coleco, which had come online after the after the two of us. So it was, Atari was first, we were second, Coleco was third, and, and the really big consoles. And there was a bunch of other competitors as well. There was Bally and so forth. Um, but uh, but we had um, you know a very robust competition. We had giant booths at at the CES trade show twice a year. Um, you know, by the end of <clears throat> the era, when I went to CES in January of, uh, 1984, I trained all the marketing people in the booth about all the games. And I had sheets printed out with fact sheets of every single game that we had. And there was a lot of them. I forget how many there were. There were probably 50, um, something like that. Anyway. And, and six of those were my my team. We were doing the Apple II and IBM PC. So we had an entire wing of the booth dedicated to Apple II and IBM PC games. And then we had all the Intellivoice games and all the uh, many different genres of uh, television games, ranging from sports to action and everything else. It was a huge booth. Atari had the same thing. Coleco had the same thing. We all had those games. We all had hit products that were selling hundreds of thousands of copies. You know, it was a big deal. And then all of a sudden, the economics just hit like a freight train. And what was happening, and for those who don't know, the short version of the story is that a lot of product came on the market. It was not very good. You know, there were a lot of companies that got in and they made fairly crummy games. And they tried to ship lots of them to Toys R Us and the other toy stores. And people didn't buy them. And then they cut them down and they said, fine, we're going to sell this for five bucks instead of 30 bucks or whatever. And that drove down the prices of everything. That's really what killed us all, you know, was this glut of second rate product that had no quality checking at all. And no, it really wasn't stuff you could be proud of. And, and it just, it, it, it created a, black hole kind of effect where it just drew everything nearby into it. And it pretty much destroyed Atari. It destroyed Mattel and it destroyed Coleco. I mean, we, we lost Mattel lost, I think half a billion dollars at the, toward the end of 93 and we, we 83 and, and we showed up at the, uh, CES in January of 84, first week of 84 by the second week of 84, they told me, you no longer have a job. So I helped run the booth, you know, train all the staff for the booth. And we talked up a great game. And then the next week they were like, it's over, dudes. We're gone. Mm-hmm. And the entire company shut down. And you think about that for a second. We had built up. I was the very first person hired in Hawthorne for the Hawthorne facility, which ultimately grew to over 100 people. So we had over 100 people there. I was hired in uh, March of 1981. And I started the minute I graduated from college, which was June of 81. And so I was like one of a dozen people at the time that that group uh, was first formed. We, we had a little tiny office off of a concrete floored hallway in the toy manufacturing building of Mattel Toys next to the dumpster 
and next to the quality assurance lab, which tested all the you know radio controlled jeeps and stuff to make sure that they weren't defective. And I mean, and we had this tiny place we called it the submarine because I mean it was literally I think a fifteen hundred square feet. That's all we were. And at the end, two and a half years later, this is only two and a half years later, we had an entire building that we took over that was a warehouse, a double-decker warehouse with special security and everything, that we took over the entire thing. We had over 100 people in it. We had a division in Nice, France. We had one in Hong Kong, and we had one in Taipei. And I actually spent the entire summer one year over in Taipei <clears throat> hiring and training the Apple II and IBM PC programming staff for uh, Mattel Electronics. We had 18, maybe even 24, depends on how you count, um, people working on Apple II and IBM PC games. And the Aquarius group was in Hong Kong and various and television stuff was in Nice. And so we had a lot of people. Uh, and it went straight from that to zero. In no time, the first three weeks of 1984, it went to zero and they just fired us all. And actually, it was a couple of there was a couple of stages there. But but the last stage was still pretty darn large. We, we definitely cut some people earlier, but there was a big cut at the end. Um, so it was it was devastating. It was shocking. It was very disappointing. It was terrifying because, you know, I was still right out of college. I was only 25 years old and I was out of a job. Um so, of course, we decided to found our own company, uh, which, by the way, is what I'm doing now. Uh, so apparently it worked. Um, but at the time, it wasn't at all clear that it was going to. Um, anyway, so it was devastating. It was absolutely mind-boggling. And, you know, you'd go to the stores and you'd see cartridges on sale for five bucks and less. Um, and this is one of the reasons why we find it interesting that Nintendo went to a different model. Nintendo was very different when the NES came on. They had cartridges that were all approved by Nintendo, and you can argue that, well, they were mean people because they made it so that nobody else could develop games for their console without their permission. Okay, true. The lack of freedom. There was a lack of freedom. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there was a surfeit of quality. Yes. The games they released were good. And that was the difference. I mean, at Mattel, honestly, I think almost everything we ever did was very good. In quality, we had some really top-notch stuff. I don't think there was much of anything that you classify as, yeah, that one really stank. You know, um, not true from some of the secondary publishers. A lot of the secondary publisher stuff was just awful. And then, of course, there's the famous legend of Atari's, <laughs> which was ET the Extraterrestrial, which we all know about the the whole rumor. And by the way, at the time, we didn't know about the trench in the desert. It was a rumor. And it stayed a rumor for 30 years mm. until they finally did the documentary, documentary and actually found that trench in the desert where <laughs> they buried all the cartridges. Mm. Mm. They really did bury 700,000 cartridges. <laughs> <laughs> but a very interesting point there, Bill, especially about Nintendo and that – because I remember, I remember the book Game Over, which is kind of a chronicle of Nintendo's period from the 80s, or I'm sorry, even earlier than that, into I think it was like the early thousands when it came out. And you're right, a lot of people hated Nintendo for locking the game, for basically forcing them to buy the cartridges in order to play the game. Or, I'm sorry, uh, buy the cartridges so you could design the games on them. But 
as you said, that was a major way for them to control quality. And quality control in of itself is still, I think, a major issue to this day. I mean, that's a good, I think, 30, 40-minute topic right here and there. Because we're seeing very similar issues in terms of quality control on digital stores. I, it was like announced, I think, a month or so ago that like Steam has had like a, I think they're up to like two to three hundred games being released like daily or something like that, just due to the fact that the store is completely open. And it's a very crazy issue because we've seen people debate about how how much control should the store have over the product. Now, that if I ask you that question, we'll be here for like another hour. But in keeping with this line about talking about the game industry crash, I guess this is probably another question that could be too big. Do you think we're past that point in terms of the modern game industry? Do you think that game developers today have any fear of just a complete shutdown like we saw in the early 80s? No, not a shutdown like that, but we do have fear of a number of things. And the big one right there is what you discussed, which is, you know, the, the, the issues with control of the market and freedom of the market. And so what's happening in Steam and what's happening even worse in the mobile market is that, you know, I have to give Apple a lot of credit. The iPhone changed the world. The iPhone development tools changed the world. Keep in mind that prior to the iPhone, mm -hmm. you did not have source code level debugger on device. And it, I've written games for Brew. I've written games for those old Motorola flip phones. Good <laughs> God, that was horrifying. Mm -hmm. That was like a nasty experience. It was worse than programming for the Intellivision. If anything could be worse than programming in the old school days where you had limited resources, it was programming with limited resources with craptacular languages like J2ME, which were just an embarrassment and a horror for the programmers because they were so difficult to use effectively, you know, and they were arm's length and you didn't get to go down to the hardware. At least in the Mattel days, we were down to the bare metal. And whatever you did, it was like, you know, a 1970s car engine. You take your dwell tack meter, you hook it up to your distributor cap, and you sit there and you tweak all the knobs and tweak all the doohickeys on your car to make it run efficiently. But you were there turning those screws on your carburetor. Whereas, you know, in, in the middle era, it was, yeah, you kind of, you're programming with, with boxing gloves on. And uh, anyway, and, and so Apple did a marvelous thing in that <laughs> they provided really great tools. But the side effect is that when the Apple store came on, we discovered to our horror that the pricing model was such that you wanted to drive everything to 99 cents. And it has actually become a problem today. And the brew, or I'm sorry, and the, uh, the Steam store, for example, we, my company publishes games on Steam. We've got one coming out in a few weeks called Gem Rush. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's a beautiful board game that's coming out in Steam. And, uh, but I'll tell you, it's hard to make money doing that because that game is really fun. Um, it's really cute. Um, but I doubt we're going to sell 100,000 copies of it. Because it's hard to get noticed because by the time we come out, in the, in the time between now and the time we ship, there's going to be 700 games in the, in, the, in the summer sale period that we're going to be competing against. Mm -hmm. For better or worse, that's what we're going to be facing. And it's a very difficult market. So one of the things that the Intellivision is going to do is we're going to have a curated store. We're not going to allow just anybody to put anything in there without any restriction. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason is exactly this. We want 
a quality experience. We also, in our case, have other reasons for doing it. We want to have a family experience, and it's very important to have somebody watching the store, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that there's a quality family curated experience that's going to be positive for everybody. But also, it's a matter of protecting the people who work so hard on the games uh, to make sure that they can make some money. Oh yeah, you know, our, our games are going to be three to three, less than ten dollars, oftentimes three to seven dollars. And you know, you look at that and you say, well, gosh, you know, even at that level, we can make a ton of money because if we sell a hundred thousand games at seven dollars a piece, well, wait a minute, mm-hmm. and these are simple games. Hmm, mm. that's that's worth doing. That's darn worth doing. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, so we're actually following the Nintendo model on purpose because – not because we're, we're, we're greedy louts who are trying to take all the money. In fact, we're being very fair to the developers. But the real reason is we want to have the ability to make a modest but consistent amount of money on all the products that get put into the store so that developers are incentivized to do their best work knowing that they're going to get rewarded for it in a rational manner. We're not going to charge 40 bucks for those downloads. <laughs> We're going to charge under 10 bucks for those downloads. That's a heck of a deal. Mm-hmm. That's one heck of a deal because those old games for Mattel were 30 bucks. You know, $29, $25, $35. I don't remember all the pricing, but I do remember that they were in that range, you know, in 1981. Mm-hmm. And you know, now we're talking about games under $10 in 2018 dollars. So it's a vastly different world and that's a heck of a bargain for game players. Um, But it still is not a race to the bottom situation. And that's what we're trying to avoid is this feeling that people need to exploit, you know, and, and twist things like have uh, power ups that you got to buy in the middle of the game. And we're all very familiar with this in a lot of right now. And, you know, hey, it is one way to make money, and some people make a lot of money at it, okay? But the the doesn't it leave you with, with a kind of a bad taste in your mouth when you see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of does. And, you know, when, when poor little Johnny can run up a $200 <laughs> bill in yeah. XYZ online game, you name the game, because it's happened, uh, that's a problem. And so that's the other thing that we're going to not do, again, is we're not going to have – we're not going to allow – manipulative financial models in a game mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to spend a hundred bucks and get a better score than the other person because you bought the extra uber wonkety weapon that <laughs> displays everything on the screen once a second mm-hmm. you know yeah and oh yeah and i'm i'm trying to resist like continuing this conversation with you bill because we'll be here for like another hour and a half easily if we do this but yeah, I would love, if you're free in, in the future, I would love to have you back on you for a live record one, uh, just talking specifically about this challenge of curated stores and even just trying to make money in the game industry these days, because that is a very serious topic, and it's one I don't think is given enough credence today. Yeah. But uh, just so I can, just so I have a little bit of thought on that, I agree with you, especially about having that create stores, especially about having some kind of measure of quality for these games. Because as I'm sure you're no doubt aware, like I see on Steam like every day, dozens upon dozens of games being released. And 
I know that not every game has been given the same exact amount of time to be developed and the amount of work. We, um, as I was saying earlier, uh, Rob and I, we do our live show on Sundays, and as kind of like a special in-between, I go to one of like my press sites, and I look at the Steam releases that are coming out for that next week, and uh-huh. the bottom of the barrel of the games that I see, like this is be below the bottom of the barrel, we're like 10 feet in the dirt at this point, of some of the games that are being released, and... These are games that are being put right next to the titles that have that look legitimately like great games, but everything is just being mixed together like that, and yeah. it becomes very hard. Like I always say, to to separate the signal from the noise. Yes, and that's what's happening a lot. Is that you find? Uh, I had a friend the other day who was trying to find a game that was trying to remember exactly what it was, but it was a very simple game. It was like a bowling game or something that he wanted to play, okay? And he went through 30 of them. Mm-hmm. He, he said at the end of the day, after an hour and a half, I had 30 games on my phone, all of them asking for my credit card and other things like that, and none of them were fun. Mm-hmm. They all sucked. <laughs> and and that's a serious problem, and that is the thing you're running into, is you get people who end up being incentivized the wrong way. You know, their, their, their incentives are to make games that are psychologically manipulative to generate revenue, mm-hmm. which is not what we want. We want to do things that are fun and 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 more. And, of course, we'll, we'll talk in a second, I think, about the in television and yeah. what our specific yeah. goals are. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, like, as you said, Bill, like, and I think that's one of the, a very important point. Like, people like you and I, like, people who play games and no game regularly or no games regularly, we can spot these tells like almost like within milliseconds of loading up a game. But when you have a general consumer who goes on their smartphone or goes on Steam and they see like pages upon pages of all these games, like it's very hard for them to spot this. And then what ends up happening is that either they'll buy a game that is completely wrong for them or they'll just get completely turned off from buying games because, you know, um, Burn once uh, you're a lot more, you're less hesitant to do it again. Once burned, twice shy. Yeah, but yeah, that is a topic that we're all. I already feel we're sorry. We're going to be running late on this one. I don't. Let's. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time. But there is one more general question. I'm afraid to ask because this could be another thirty minute conversation. But right. uh, again, keeping with your background, the game industry. There's one thing that I want to talk about. That I think a lot of younger people who are getting the game industry over like the last five, ten years don't really understand or who never grew up with. And that is the change in perception about video games. Again, you were making games for the Intellivision. You were back during the 70s. And uh, uh, I'm sorry? Great question. Uh, okay, and uh, so just to finish up, so like I remember I got into games back in the mid-80s, and for like good 20, maybe even even more than that, plus years, video games were considered like, you know, like pop culture of poison. You know, I remember watching how many of sitcoms of people playing video games were looked at as, you know, being unhealthy or were going to make fun of them. And then like, it's just been such a weird change in terms of that perception. And I just really want to get your thoughts on that as someone who's lived through it. Yeah, it is a very different world. And I can tell you that, you know, the conversation when I got my first job, I got two job offers, one from, I believe it was Hughes and the other from Mattel. 
they both paid about the same amount of money. Hughes would have been designing nuclear missiles, and uh, literally. And uh, the Mattel was designing this weird new thing called video games. And, you know, people ask me, well, don't you want to get a real job? Oh. Yeah. And, you know, you, you should go into aerospace because aerospace is the future. Of course, aerospace crashed, too, and mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit later than video game industry, but it also crashed. But, you know, people were wondering, well, why don't you get a real job? Why would you want to do this weird thing? You know, it's like not cool at all. And and that's the truth. It wasn't cool. Video games were not cool when I got my first job. There was no you know respect for people. Video, ooh, I want to be a video game programmer. It's like you know, the, the, it was more like ooh, I want to be a total loser dork. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it was a very different world back then when we first started out. And you know, we're doing these things, and it took a long time for it to turn around. One way to measure it is in two thousand one, we started doing a long series of military training apps for the U.S. Army and the Marine Corps and Naval Postgraduate School. And our first game was a game called Full Spectrum Command, which was a company commander training app. So it was not about shooting. It was about company command. It was about uh, intelligence and thinking and so forth and planning. And we did this, and the Army, a good chunk of the Army was like, why are you doing this? This is stupid. We do real live fire exercises. We, you know, we do live simulation exercises. And we actually flew out to Fort Benning, Georgia, to the McKenna Mount facility. Mount is uh, uh, military operations urban terrain. And we walked that facility. We mapped that facility. We got uh, satellite data and actually drew every single building and every single wall in that entire in, in that entire facility and simulated it on the computer. And a lot of the people in the Army were very skeptical of mm-hmm. why would you want to do this. And by the way, it wasn't just the older folks. There were some younger folks, too, because keep in mind that, you know, you think the Army, oh, everybody in the Army loves to play video games. Actually, it's not true. Mm-hmm. About half of them despise them. Mm-hmm. They think it's a chaotic waste of time uh, because they've got more important things to do with their lives than, than dork around. And at least that's, that's the way the attitude comes through. Mm-hmm. And, and it makes sense. I totally get that. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm going to go defend the free world. I, I don't need to play games. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got to worry about, you know, building my skills and getting strong and staying healthy and, and, and being a good combatant and so forth or a good planner, um, which is very, very obsessively time-consuming types of professions. Um, so, but, but anyway, the bottom line is that mo- most of the people in the Army weren't really that impressed with what we were doing. And it wasn't until like 2005, 2006, 2008 maybe even – that some of the later product that we did, the assumption within the Army and within the armed forces in general was, well, of course these simulation games are a good idea. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't they be? Oh. You know, but it wasn't until almost 2010 that I started to see a really strong shift in my, in my interactions. Maybe it was different for other people, but definitely a skewing towards that. Also, we've done a lot of educational software over the years. And about 10 years ago, we did a product called Type to Learn 4, which is a major typing app. And by the time Type to Learn 4 came out, it was very obvious to everybody that, you know, electronic typing tutor games were a really good idea mm-hmm. because they were a heck of a lot more fun than sitting there on a manual or an electric typewriter and doing drills. Mm-hmm. And it was the most interesting way to do drills that you could possibly come up with is what it boiled down to. And, you know, so, so it has changed a tremendous amount. Back in the early days, there was definitely talk about, you know, the – the corrupting influence of the evil video games. Of course, there still is today, and that is still a part of 
the hole that we're dealing with. And in fact, uh, just recently, the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual draft, I think it's DSM-12, is it, uh, for the psychological uh, people, um, has formally recognized uh, gaming addiction or gaming, what was it they called it? They didn't call it gaming addiction. They called it gaming syndrome or something like that. Yeah. You know, as, as a actual treatable, um, treatable condition. Now there's been a lot of debate as to whether that's a good or a bad thing that's been recognized. And it's actually a very complicated question. Yeah. It doesn't have an easy answer. Um, it is, very similar to other types of behavior where there's a small portion of people who do not do well, you know, in greater society because they're playing games too much. Um, it does happen in the same way that, you know, some people smoke too much. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a, it's a very complicated situation, but we are at a point so that that will always exist. There will always be people who say, you know, that's evil and that's wrong. Again, that's one of the things that, I'm trying to change that, that I want to see different. And, and, you know, we can use that as a segue perhaps into, mm -hmm. you know, why in television, why now, why does this make any sense at all? And, and the reason is because if you look at the video game industry, we're very much buttonholed and pigeonholed in the press into, well, it's all about shooters. You know, <laughs> everybody's playing, you know, X, Y, Z shooter, and you can name a rattle off the names of a whole bunch of them. Yeah. And, <clears throat> And those are the ones that are getting all the attention, just like the AAA movies in Hollywood get all the attention, you know. But that doesn't mean, you know, there's there's uh, Avengers: Infinity War was a giant movie that was hugely successful. It was a lot of fun, but you know, there were also other great games, uh, other other great movies. I mean, like uh, Lost in Translation, also by the way, starring Scarlett Johansson, mm. um, which were equally amazing and high quality experiences that were made on a tiny budget instead of a gigantic budget um there's a lot there's a big breadth of of content and a big breadth of games out there and i'm concerned to some extent that the industry has gotten tarred as well video games are just bad they're just distractions they're just the things that you throw at your kids to get them you know rewards you give them a reward for having done their homework or to distract the younger ones when you're trying to get something else done and so forth and they're kind of like overly sugary candy mm -hmm. there's no there's no substance there there's nothing good about them there's nothing you're going to gain from them that's not true either i mean there there are definitely some motor skill development some intellectual skill development and some long-term positive results that can result from playing games oh yeah and you're killing me bill with all these topics i would i want to jump on <laughs> them but Too much to talk about. we'll be here until sometime next week at this rate we get on them. But yeah, I agree with you. And it's one of the things that, again, drives me crazy when people say, oh, the game industry is this or the game industry is that because the game industry is really a very fragmented place. Like there, we really don't have a center like uh, the film industry with Hollywood or uh, uh, California and so on. Like. I've spoken to developers at this point almost on literally on every continent. I think the only two I haven't spoken to someone on was Japan for some strange reason and Antarctica. But I've talked to people from uh, Cape Town, Africa to Taiwan and even to uh, Brazil. And mm -hmm. 
everybody is really doing their own thing, and there are so many amazing games, and that's one of the things that really keeps me going as well with doing this stuff with Game Wisdom, is being able to experience it all. And, like, I've heard the exact same thing as you said, like, oh, you play video games, so what, you just sit for eight hours and play one game. I'm like, no, I, like, people view video games, and this is, again, its own greater topic that we gotta be careful not to jump on too far, but people, there's, people treat video games much like they treat, uh, like, commercial products or hardware that, you know, you're just doing one thing on that, and that's it, and you just throw it out and get the new one, but, there's just so much diversity in terms of game design that I think is being lost on by a lot of people. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, my, my real point here is that it's, it's not a monolithic industry. There's a lot there and there's a lot of wonderful stuff that's out there in very, very different genres. Um, and one of the things that we're trying to do is to pick a genre that's been underserved. And if you look at E3, I mean, we walked around the floor on E3 and saw all the games that are out there. Almost to a one, they're giant, epic, mm-hmm. shooter, real-time experience type things, whether you're exploring, whether you're fighting zombies or or uh, fighting in World War II or, or doing parkour around the city of Paris or whatever it is that you're <laughs> doing in the game. They're giant, epic projects with massive amounts of graphics and massive teams building them oftentimes hundreds of people building these games and and they're multiple weeks long months long and sometimes in some cases years long experiences Mm -hmm. to get everything out of it that you want to get out of it um sure that's that but that's not the industry that's not the only part of the industry and one of the things that we're sad about is that the industry seems to have abandoned something that we had back in the early days. When we played in television, we played as a family. We played together. My brother and I played, or sometimes you'd play with your parents, or you'd have friends over, and you'd all gather around the TV, and you'd play. It was a social experience, and it was a positive social experience. It wasn't, you know, I've got a headset on, and I'm dealing with all sorts of moronic trolls who are yelling at me, <laughs> um, you know, and all the uh, all the things that can happen in these games, or, you know, with live chat and what have you going on. There's a lot of eh, – they're, they're fraught experiences, let's just put it that way. And and we've lost – even the, the closest one that came to revisiting this was Nintendo with mm. the Wii and Wii Sports, which is the third most – the third, third top-selling game of all time on any console at, I think, 84 million units. And the reason why is because Wii Sports was a tremendous amount of fun to play. Um, and it was easy and it was accessible to anybody and a family could play and a family could play together. And that hasn't happened since then. And Nintendo basically left that alone. They didn't really follow up on the potential of the Wii because they got sucked back into the, we're going to make games for gamers world. And so there really isn't any, um, console or any system or any platform that is uniquely tailored just for families. Mm -hmm. And, for games that kids can play with adults, for games that are safe for kids, for a platform that's safe for kids. You know, when have you seen a game system, there isn't one out there right now, that you can say, I'm going to buy this and take it home, and the kids can can do anything on it. I'm going to let them have free reign on this box because there's nothing on this box that, that I'm going to be worried about them seeing or doing. It doesn't exist. 
Yeah. You don't have that now. And that's nothing. That, there's nothing wrong with consoles that have all these features that we've been talking about. The, you know, the Xboxes, the PS2s, these consoles have, or PS4, they have marvelous, marvelous games on them, okay? And there's nothing wrong with those games. And if you like to play first-person shooter games or action games or, you know, massively multiplayer games, great. That, that's, that's fine. But not everybody wants to play those. Mm -hmm. If you were to take a Nintendo Switch and drop it into Grandma's hands today and hand her Zelda, <laughs> what's she going to do? She's not going to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's going to be hopeless. It's too complicated. And what we've discovered, you know, we, we, we kind of knew this intuitively, that as we talk to more and more people, we've discovered that this is absolutely true, that the average human in this country, not the average gamer, but the average ordinary person that goes to work every day and eats pizza on the weekends and so forth and watches movies and watches TV, they would love something simple. They would love to pick up some controller that doesn't have dual shoulder <laughs> buttons, dual sticks, 45 triggers on it, all sorts of different multicolored goodies all over sticking out like a porcupine. They're terrified of that. And I can understand that because I feel the same way when I pick up an Xbox controller. It's like, wow, you know, if, 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 if I'm going to get good at this shooter game, it's going to take me forever, <laughs> you know, because I've got to learn how to you know, dodge left and dodge right and crouch and fire and throw and equip and do, 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 do. And, and yeah, they're really neat and they're a lot of fun. But good grief, you got to be obsessed about it to, to really get good at those mm -hmm. games. What we want is to have grandma playing with the kids on Thanksgiving Day. You know, you toss a controller to her and it's a simple little controller with a half a dozen controls on it. And it's kind of rounded and kind of soft and and friendly and easy to understand. And you can immediately say, now just press this thing left and right and here's the shoot button. Okay, let's play together. Mm -hmm. Literally takes 10 seconds to explain the game. Yeah. And, you know, there is a tremendous market and a tremendous, all the people I talk to, I talk to the folks at my gym, I talk to friends and I say, and we're gonna make E-rated games and we're gonna make a game system where you can play with your kid. And they're like, really? Oh, my God, sign me up tomorrow. <laughs> you know, I would love to do that because it's a lot more than just, oh, yeah, we're going to have <clears throat> classic video games. No, no, no. We're not building a retro game console. We're building a family game system that just so happens to be built on the foundations of the great, found the great family games and the great retro games of the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it's really about family gaming. That's what we're really doing. Yeah, and th again, this is a this has been a fascinating conversation with you, and I know we are over an hour in terms of this recording, and there's just so much we can talk about. I figure uh, let's spend maybe another 15, 20 minutes if you're able, uh, and we'll do that. But yeah, like I said, I, I my head is already spinning with like a part two, part three, and part four. Yeah, I'd be happy to do a part two and a part three. I mean, this you as you can tell, I like to talk. But because I like what I like doing what I'm doing. I mean, yeah. this is fun for me. It's exciting. But also, you know, as you can tell, I'm very much in the I'm going to change the world yeah. mode at this point. And that means a lot to me. And it means a lot to all the people we're, I'm working with right now who are bringing this to fruition. This isn't a marketing ploy. Oh, yeah. This is we're going to change the dang world. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hear that same passion from so many independent developers I've had on these casts that – 
they love to talk about this stuff because you really don't get a chance to talk about game design, you know, with like your friends and family unless they're already gamers with you. And it's just an amazing conversation to have. And uh, for those of you listening to this right now, again, we're about like an hour and it just feels like we just started like 20 minutes ago. Like that's how it yeah, feels when we do this. Does. I'm looking at the clock, I'm saying, what? Oh. How did it get to be this time? Oh, yeah. Ooh. That's the uh, standard expression for any of these podcasts. Especially, yeah. I'm kind of glad we didn't do this first one live because uh, the audience will either be like sitting their edge, edge of their seat, or they may have fallen asleep by the time we're done with this talk. <laughs> Quite possibly, yeah. Yeah, you get obsessed about it. Oh, yeah. But uh, keeping with uh, segueing into telling more about the Intellivision revival, as you just said, a major part of it, of course, is building a family-friendly console, something that, you know, anyone can sit down and play. But uh, I guess rewinding just a little bit, where, like, how did this get started with getting the Intellivision brand back and beginning to work on it? That's a good question. It's a big question. Mm -hmm. The Intellivision brand, when Mattel faded away, Terry took over. INTV Corporation lasted until 1990. Then that folded up as well. They closed that down. A few years later, we discovered, a friend of mine discovered that the rights to the Intellivision were available. He could buy it off this guy. He said, you know what? I'm gonna just. I'm gonna try to buy it. I'm gonna try to find this guy. Well, it was hard to find him because he was not in the country, and he was only communicating through his lawyer. However, he was able to cut a deal. He was delighted to be able to sell the rights, and so my friend Keith Robinson, uh, in uh, I believe it was '96, '97, bought the rights to the Intellivision. As a matter of fact, all of Mattel Electronics. So those little football handhelds. Technically, we own those too. Nice. Um, <laughs> And, and he, over the years, released a various uh, set of products. We licensed it a few times, uh, a couple of them quite successfully, sold millions of units of some of the handheld, you know, in television game collection sets. Um, and did, did, you know, it was a lot of fun, and it was, but it was kind of a hobby business, right? It was not a giant business. <clears throat> and, and it was mainly retro games. And we went to all the retro game conferences. We had a great time, and we would talk to people and so forth. But... Things kind of changed about a year ago because we lost Keith, and that was a very big shock to all of us and a very big disappointment because he was really the glue who was holding a lot of us together and keeping us um, communicating with, with one another all these years. We can talk about the Blue Sky Rangers and the origin of that term uh, another time because that's another long story. But what we ended up – we met every year. We, we get together every year for, for uh, lunch. Um, on on the anniversary of when we got fired just for fun and there's like 20 30 people who show up every year and this is 34 years ago that we got fired and we still get together every year so we became friends we've stayed friends and you know over the years what happened when uh when when we lost keith we was like okay fine what are we going to do and several of us got together and said well we're not going to let this go away we're going to we're going to keep this thing alive we're going to make something of this um so uh, long story short, we managed to obtain the rights to the, to the property from Keith's estate. And then we also realized that there are a lot of people out there who are very, very fanatical, very enthusiastic about supporting the television. Um, they thought it was their best game console. They thought it was a good one out there. They think it's not, you know, as popular as 
the other ones, you know, it's not as well known as Atari. Everybody knows Atari. Not everybody knows Mattel. Mm -hmm. And some of them came to us, and Tommy Tallarico in particular, who uh, does video games live and is well known oh, for yes. having done more video games than anybody else. Um, and he loved Mattel, and he basically sat down with us a couple of times and said, you know, guys, I wonder if we can make something out of this. Wouldn't it be cool if we did something big, something ambitious with what we've got here? Wouldn't that be a lot of fun and and meaningful and so forth? And we said, well, yeah, let's talk about that. And the more we talked, the bigger it got. And it wasn't it wasn't on purpose at first. I mean, we weren't looking to say, oh, let's make a big company. Rah! What happened was we said, wouldn't it be great if we did this? Wouldn't it be great if we did that? Wouldn't it be great if you know there were games for families again? Yeah, we could redo some of the games. We don't just have to release the old ones. What if we released new ones? We all looked at each other, said, oh, that's a pretty good idea. And then another one of the fans, Emily, you know, we were talking here one day. She said, well, you know, we're going to do E-rated games. We're going to do family games. What if we just made them all E-rated? Everybody looks at each other and says, oh, my God. That's brilliant. That'll totally work. And... You know, it's things like this that w when we, we started putting all the pieces together and then one day we said, holy cow, this is going to work. This is not just going to be, let's release, you know, like we did a few years ago, a little, you know, emulator based console with the old games on it with the original graphics, you know, that don't look all that great by today's standards by any means. Let's do it all brand new. Let's start over from scratch. And, yeah, we'll release the old games because they're cool and they're fun. And people get a laugh out of playing them. But let's do new versions of them. And let's make them all family games. We could divide our own console. I wonder if that's possible. Let's look at the hardware. And we started looking at the hardware and we realized that the hardware has come along so far. And you really couldn't have done this five years ago. It would have been a lot harder. The hardware has come along so far now that, as you know, you can buy a number of different system-on-a-chip systems that have four quad-core ARM CPUs with GPUs and Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and half a dozen other things for really cheap. And, and we're like, oh, my God, we can manufacture the hardware. We can totally manufacture the hardware and, and, and not have it cost a fortune because the kind of games we want to do don't require mm -hmm. the top-of-the-line video chip with a thousand cores, you know, that has a heat sink the size of a baseball, you know, okay, hmm, what does that mean? And we very quickly figured out that this means that we can make a fun little box that's going to be family entertainment, that's going to be our, our four principles, fun, family, affordable, and simple. And, you know, we can do all these things. And we're like, Wait a minute, this works as a business model. This isn't a stupid plan. And so we, we got very excited about it because we realized that, you know, it isn't just a pipe dream. Because, you know, sometimes you come up with an idea, wouldn't it be great if we did this? And then, you know, somebody comes and pours cold water on your idea and says, yeah, but you'd have to, like, drain the ocean to, to cool it or whatever. You know, because typically your ideas are tremendously ambitious and you're like, nah, it's never going to work. But in this case, we said, wait a minute, this is totally going to work. We can do this. And, and it's going to work. And, and we talked to other people. We started talking to our friends and said, if we did this, would, would you be interested? And they're like, oh, yeah, I'd buy one. 
<laughs> you know, and I was just talking to uh, one of the people I work out with at the gym and this weekend. And of course I was talking about what I do because we never shut up. Right. Um, and, and she's like, Oh, I, can I be a play tester, please? She said, I don't play video games, but I want your, I want your system. I want to do that because I want to play games with my kids, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and everybody thinks that. And so that's, that's kind of how it's gotten to where it was. And now we're doing the business model and just the short version of that is, oh, yeah, this is totally real. This is no joke. We've got people who are going to be investing in it. We've already started lining up people who are going to do the first and second rounds of the investments to make this thing happen. It's not going to be cheap. It's not going to be super fast. I mean, we're not going to deliver it for Christmas this year. We won't be doing Christmas next year. Um, but it's going to be real. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're extremely excited right now because we're – looking at each other and saying, this is going to work. <laughs> We're going to do it. We're going to change the industry because nobody's doing it. And that's what finally has come together for us is the story of, yeah, there's no family game system out there. Mm-hmm. There's no game system where you can play with your grandma. Mm-hmm. And everybody wants one. And like you said a few minutes ago regarding like Nintendo Wii, that was like kind of like that first – like that was like the first time we really saw the video game market kind of open its doors very widely, and then yeah. outside that we saw kind of mobile games as well, and both have of course gone on to very very different paths there. And as you were right. just talking there, Bill, about manufacturing a console, that's another topic that I want to talk to you about again, but. I, I should start writing these all down just so I can remember them all for when we have yeah, you back yeah, on. And, you know, and by the way, we will be a lot more able to talk about the hardware of the console in mid-October. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who don't know, we're going to Portland Retro Gaming Expo. We're going to be the keynote presentation there. We're going to have the big auditorium packed to the gills with people. We are going to be announcing... Uh, we're going to be showing mock-ups of the hardware. Um, we're not going to show running games because we won't have running games. Mm-hmm. But we're going to show mock-ups of what the console is going to look like and what the hand controllers are going to look like. And it's going to be quite real. Um, we've, we've already got a pretty good idea of what we're doing, actually. But we're a long way from locking it in. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to – because we want to make promises that are real promises. Yeah. We want to be able to say, yes, we're definitely going to do this. So we've got hardware engineers already working on the design of the hardware. You know, and industrial engineers, we're getting ready to start the, you know, the, the hardcore industrial design because we've already got the specifications coming together. These are the kind of things that are completely real. And by on October 20th of this year in Portland, we're going to have a live stream. So you don't have to go there. You can just watch online. And we're going to talk all about what the games console is going to be. We're going to talk about the games that are actually going to be on it. And by the way, there are going to be some very famous titles that are going to show up again, names that you know. From people you know, mm-hmm. and as and original people doing them again, and as a, a point, I just want to clarify or elaborate for people listening: Will the Intellivision console have? I'm assuming it will have like online or like a digital store for people to download yeah. and buy games on. Yes, we'll have a digital store. Okay, and uh, talking about what you were just saying with regards to modernizing these classic games again. This is another, like, 50-minute discussion. It's a long, long, long conversation. That's correct. But uh, just for this section, because I want to clarify for people listening, I, I just want to get your thoughts on this. Like, 
what kind of approach are you and the other developers kind of taking in terms of modernizing these games? Because, like, I've spoken to developers who have made uh, quote-unquote modern retro games, like Shovel Knight, um, Odalis, and so on. These are games that are designed to look like a classic game, like, very much, like, they look like they could come out back in 1985 or 1990, but they feature modernized elements. And I guess, like, what kind of approach are you guys taking with this? A little bit different, but all those all those are good for their own reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ours is going to be, we're, we're focusing on, again, fun and family-oriented and simple and uh, affordable. And so we're not doing things to take a tremendous amount of graphics. We're not doing things to take a tremendous amount of CPU power. And as a matter of fact, what I've told the developers so far is if you're designing your game to take maximum advantage of the throughput of the hardware, you're designing the wrong product. Mm-hmm. We don't want it. Um, we want to focus on the fun and the gameplay. And so what we're looking for is games that are really pretty. I mean, we're going to be HDMI cable, mm-hmm. 1920 by 1080. Okay, it ain't going to be ugly. That's for sure. You're going to have plenty of resolution. It's going to be glorious, big graphic screen, 32-bit graphics, the whole bit, right? So this is not classic gaming community world from that sense. It's not a classic gaming look. So we're going to do nice graphics. They're not going to be absurd, ridiculous, you know, 3D <laughs> navigable worlds with with shaders everywhere. And so, no, no, no. Who cares? There are other games that do that. They will do that. We're going to do simple fun, right? So we're going to do things that are going to be immediately recognizable as whatever it is, the bunny rabbit hopping across the screen and so forth, that everybody looks at it and says, oh, that's adorable. I want to play that thing. And you could do plenty of cartoony stuff that's really compelling cartoony stuff that's very highly polished but doesn't, you know, stretch the hardware to the limits. Um, so we're going to have modernized graphics. They're going to look contemporary. They're going to look cool. So this this solves the problem that a lot of, the, of us with the old games that we did. Astro Smash is very iconic for what it is, but it's really chunky graphics. And the younger generations look at it and say, that's pretty lame looking, dudes. Um, and we understand that. <laughs> okay. It, it is what it is, and it's still a fun game to play, but it's pretty ugly looking by, by any stretch of the, the modern aesthetic imagination. So, so it'll be, it'll be uh, revived. But you know what? The thing about that game that is good is the, gra- is the, the gameplay. The gameplay is still very compelling and fun and addictive. And, you know, we were sitting there playing it at the E3 as we're talking to people in the booth, going back and forth, shooting the rocks, trying to get all the rocks. Um, it's still fun. And so that we're going to keep. What we're going to keep is the ability to explain the game in 10 seconds, hand the controller to grandma, and she can play it. And by the way, also hand it to the six-year-old or the eight-year-old and those young kids Maybe, you know, if they're not quite so skilled or they don't have quite the dexterity, you can make the game a little bit easier for them and you can play it. So dad and the kids or mom and the kids or whoever can play the same game and each have a fun experience and each have a chance of winning but not be overwhelming. And so most of what we're focusing on, as you can tell here right now, is high quality of simple, elegant, fun, easily accessible, easily learnable gameplay. Um, that doesn't mean they're going to be kitty games. I'll just clarify. That doesn't mean they're going to be dumbed down because games like Astro Smash, even in its simple embryonic form before, take a great deal of skill to learn. Or Biplanes is one of our favorites. That was the team's favorite that we played together. There's a lot of subtlety in that game. And now all that subtlety is going to be retained. 
just like we had in many of the games that we designed back in that console era where you didn't have much to play with, but there were some really interesting, complex, non-trivial strategies that you could employ to become better at the game that you would learn over time. And that's not going to be missed. As a matter of fact, that's we're going to take whatever amount of time it takes to make our games have those abilities. So they're not just going to be, you know, dumb ripoffs or dumb simplifications of the old games. They're going to be just as high quality and just as highly polished as the old games were, but with a new, a new pretty look and maybe some new features. And the, the hand controller is going to be awesome because we've already announced a couple of things about it. So I can talk about it now. They're going to be wireless and they're going to have a, a, a LCD control panel of some sort in place of the old overlays. So in place of the old 12 key keypad, it's going to be an actually a light up panel mm-hmm. with the, that's touchscreen. And that means you don't need the plastic overlays anymore. Whatever game you play, the controls customize themselves. It's going to be really, really awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That that, that sounds amazing to have that. Just Again, as you said, it makes it a lot easier for someone to learn because you just have the controls that are representative of whatever game you're playing be displayed. And you don't need to keep these little pieces of plastic around. I mean, we love the old overlays, okay? But they're very much an 80s type of thing. Mm-hmm. And we're past that. we got to get past that. And, you know, honestly, they, they cost a ton to print those things. And so we're looking at it and saying, wow, with the money we saved from not printing 80 overlays and sticking them into the game, oh, we can afford better hardware. Let's build better hardware. Let's build something really cool where it's actually a digital display of some sort. We don't know exactly what kind yet, to be quite honest. We're working it out, but there's a lot of parts. We've already looked at the parts. We know that they're available. Um, you know, let's find a way to, to take a, uh, a nice, uh, modest resolution display of some sort that's got a touch panel on it, that's got an Arduino chip attached to it, that's got Bluetooth LE in it. Those exist. You can easily buy them. You can easily shop for them online and find them. You know, let's do that and then make that into our hand controller. And then what else is going to happen beyond that? Well, I don't know, but that's just so awesome already. Mm-hmm. That you know that I I can't even I I can't get much past that without saying okay that's totally gonna work yeah you know so yep. anyway that that's that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about there and that's what's really gonna the the two things then then that are gonna distinguish us is you know first off they're gonna be fun simple elegant beautiful games and secondly we're gonna have our own unique hand controller it's a very simple controller that harkens back to the Wii controllers um, and or the original Atari and Mattel controllers and Coleco controllers, which were fairly simple and elegant and, and very cleverly done. Yeah, very interesting. Now, as you were just saying, with regards to getting games on the Intellivision, as we've said earlier, that this is not just going to be even just modernized takes on the old classic lineup, but you're also courting new developers to create games similar in style, right? Right. Absolutely. And, you know, we're going to allow them to write games in things like Unity. Um, we may have other toolkits as well. We're, still, we're exploring a lot of options because we want to give them as many choices as we can give them. But, you know, Unity without all the fancy 3D stuff is still a great development system. has a lot of power to it. We are going to be doing probably some unique customizations that are only for our platform. We're very excited about that. We'll talk more about that in a few months. But, uh, but the bottom line is that we're going to be doing new games, yes. And we're going to be looking at the indie markets and finding the best of the indie publishers, looking at these games that we say, we've already got a couple in mind. 
we're saying, oh my gosh, this is such a beautiful game. I would love to have this game, you know, uh, in my in my uh, pantheon of great software that's on the system that we've only got, you know, X number of games where the X is a very small number, but this is this is one of them, and it's a it's the best looking, clever, new, original platformer that we've seen in a long time, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to have those and, you know, remakes, not just of the console games, but some of the PC games that were very popular in that era. There are certain games which whose names I shall not mention, <laughs> but you would know instantly, oh my gosh, you're doing that. And these are games where we've got, again, the focus on quality there. It's because they're great games. They always were great games. And, you know, the younger kids are not going to recognize what this name is. They're not going to immediately say, oh, yeah, I know that. But they're going to know that the name carries weight because it was there before the beginning of time as far as they're concerned. And that's going to happen with several of these. But what's doubly exciting to us is not only do we have those incredibly fun, very beautifully designed classic games coming back in some form that's going to be you know, a modernized version of the old one and a modernized inspiration uh, from the old one. But we've got, in many cases, the original teams back. <laughs> and that's the other part that we're going to be announcing is we're going to be bringing people up on stage during the during the uh, Classic Games Expo. And we're going to say, ah, some of you in the audience may remember so-and-so. Well, this person is now doing a new game for us after 40 years. So it's going to be very interesting. Oh, yeah, for sure. And uh, like we said at the start, we're recording this right now in mid-July. And it sounds like you guys have a lot of big announcements coming in the coming in the months ahead. Yes. But uh, to wrap things up for tonight. So right now, in terms of where you're at with the Intellivision relaunch, you mentioned you're going to be showing it at uh, the, you said the Oakland Retro Game Show in a few months? Portland, Oregon. Portland, sorry. And then I guess, and as you said, it's going to still be at least a year or so out, maybe even more than that, before things are actually going to be developed. Do you have, again, I know it's not good to make uh, promises and timelines, but do you have like a rough idea of when you would like to see the system out and be available? We're not announcing a date yet, but okay. we can tell you it's not going to be Christmas this year and it's not going to be Christmas next year. All right. So for people listening to us right now who want to keep uh, – keep their uh, ears open or their eyes open for this where like some of like the best places to i guess go to for more information for the intellivision number one would be intellivisionentertainment.com which is our website um it's right now just an announcement site we don't have a lot of stuff out there because we haven't talked about a lot of it yet but we have you know the first the first hundred thousand people who sign up there will get a, a chance to get a special version of the console that's unique and has unique stuff on it. Um, so we're clearly interested in getting people to sign up and, and follow us there. We have Twitter, you know, and television entertainment is on Twitter and also on Facebook. We're going to be putting things out on a fairly regular basis. Um, you can also uh, look at Quicksilver.com, which is my website. Uh, Quicksilver is still a very active company. We're robust. We're doing lots of different projects in AR and, uh, and, and, all sorts of technology, AR, and, and we're doing a website thing right now. We've got an app that does fantastic graphic manipulations of the scene called Sky Replacement. We've got a ton of stuff. 
And so, but we'll be announcing stuff there as well. So you can also look there. And I've got, for example, right now on my website, and there's a link to it on the front page, um, a, a list of all, you know, all the announcements and some of the early press that we've gotten on in television. And I, I occasionally go in and add new uh, articles there. So we've got a link to the uh, Venture Beat article that was the one that really kicked off the excitement and one to America. Uh, USA Today, that's it. Um, and I think uh, either the Forbes or Fortune article and so forth and so on, uh, as well as to some of the podcasts that are coming out. And there's some great things. We've had a number of bloggers who've been really excited, people like Brian's Man Cave, who have gone out of their way to talk all about what we're doing and talk to us online, and we're happy to talk to them. And so we're going to keep track of that. By the way, of course, I'll put a link to this uh, on on that page as well. So there's a couple of different places, and, and Quicksilver, of course, has Twitter and Facebook as well. Um, but, you know, we just want people to uh, uh, be aware of us, be aware that we exist, to follow, to talk about it, to ask us questions. This is the other thing that I will encourage people to do is feel free to go on to these, you know, uh, YouTube channels and the Facebook and the Twitter and ask questions. We do answer them, and we're happy to do that, and we're happy to – you know, let people know this is what we do. This is what we're doing. You know, they'll ask, are you going to do X? And we'll say, well, either yes, no, or honestly, we don't know yet. You know, but we'll try to be straight up with everybody because we're trying to make it clear that this is a serious professionally run operation. Every single one of us is a fanatic about the Intellivision. The people who are redoing the console are at least four of us. And we probably are going to be signing on more of us. Um, are people who worked on the original Intellivision back in the 1980s. And we're the ones who are developing the games, designing the hardware, designing the so some of the software. So, you know, this is not just a marketing operation. <laughs> this is the people who did it before are doing it again. Great. And you kind of answered my next question. Have you had any final thoughts, anything you'd like to say to wrap the cast up with, too? But, uh, Bill, definitely, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. This has been just, my mind is like kind of like on overload in terms of all the things we could talk about. And glad to hear it. That's, that's, the, that's what we want to have. Yeah. That's, I'm glad to hear that. It's, I always say this, but it is, I love having these conversations about game design in the industry. They're definitely what keeps me going and this was one of the better ones i've had i think in a while so thank you so much for coming Thanks. on well you're welcome and it's uh, definitely keeps me young as well i uh i'm in completely in denial about my actual chronological age because i don't think it matters <laughs> oh man but uh definitely be best of luck with you and with getting this going and like I said, I'm sure we'll be talking again in the coming weeks or months because there's many, many more parts of conversations to be had. Yeah, and we'd be happy to do it. Uh, and we'll certainly look forward to it. And we will. I will get uh, Tommy to talk up what we've done today when we get the. So send me the links to everything, and we'll, uh, you know, put it up online on our our site and uh, let everybody know about this discussion so that they can listen in. Because they do, and they have a lot of fun doing it. They comment. They really do comment. Um, so uh, it's good for everybody on this. And we look forward to it. And I thank you very much for all of your uh, very good questions that, uh, that opened the door to the, the topics that needed to be talked about. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, 
give me a bullet list and we'll talk again. Oh, yeah. And again, there's still so much more, but we're going to wrap things up here. So with that said, uh, we're going to end things for this week's cast. So thank you so much uh, for tuning in. If you'd like to follow me, you can find me on Twitter at GWBicer for my thoughts throughout the day. And be sure to check out the Patreon for Game Wisdom. That's patreon.com slash GWBicer. Your donations can help to keep things going. And you can get access to things such as ad-free versions of our talks or our live talks and a lot more. But that is going to certainly do it for tonight. So again, Bill, it has been great hanging out with you. And best of luck. And and I can't wait to have our next talk. Likewise. Looking forward to it. All right. So you folks listening, thanks again. And be sure to tune in next time for another great discussion about the art and craft of game design. But until then, have a great night.